may be seated, church. And as you do, please meet me in the Gospel of John. It's the fourth Gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first books of the Bible, or first books of the New Testament, rather. And if you get to Acts or Romans, uh, go back to the left. Um, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. And um, you've probably never heard uh, of Ann Snyder before. And she's an editor and a research assistant, perhaps not the most glamorous of jobs <laughs> to you um, or to some of us. But however, a few years before the release of David Brooks, one of my favorite writers and latest, before his latest like national bestseller back in 2015, Brooks hired Anne. And David Brooks, he's a weekly uh, columnist for the New York Times, lectures at places like Yale and Duke, um, regularly contributes, shows up on like PBS politics hours and those sorts of um, watch regularly. Um, he's written multiple bestsellers, right? Um, he eventually hires Anne, David Brooks does, and Anne is a follower of Jesus and David is not. And over the course of the next number of years, she actually changed his life. I was reminded recently that Brooks, the beginning of the end of that project, or the beginning of that book that resulted from, uh, or that came uh, after he hired Anne, he began with Anne in his book, The Road to Character. Uh, Brooks wrote, under Anne's influence, this project became a book about morality and the inner life. If there are any important points in this writer, what has taken place, as sort of like summarized there by David Brooks, is something pretty profound. She made Jesus more accessible, more understandable, and more beautiful to one of the leading minds in this country. Not that Jesus needs someone to make him more beautiful or more understandable or more accessible, but he often uses us, doesn't he? Just like Anne. She lived, I think, with this kind of faith in the flesh, in the middle of her work, in the middle of her life. And in fact, Brooks eventually did become a follower of Jesus. Our passage today has always seemed like a massive disruption to me. A disruption from the context and a disruption otherwise in a really wonderful Advent recollection from the Gospel writer John. There's this grand storytelling, if you will, from the creation narrative that light shines in the darkness. And then soon, John gets to this, one of the most profound lines anywhere in the scriptures, the word became flesh. And in the middle of that, of this worshipful, miraculous passage about the Son of the living God, John says what? There was a man. Feels like a disruption, right? His name was John. He's not the light. He's just come to talk about it and to point at it. I think that's a bit odd, isn't it? <laughs> I, it feels like an interruption. The, the shift, in fact, is so severe that many biblical scholars think that it's an actual intrusion, in other words, that another writer brought words into John's original text. Our call, this ostensible disruption perfectly summarizes, I think, our, our calling as followers of Jesus, especially if no one has ever heard of you. See, that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about what faith looks like when it's lived in the actual flesh, in real space, in real time. It's meaning, it's immental facts, figures, ideas, or even like practices of ways of being, nor is it simply one of many ways to view a loving and meaningful life. I think John, this gospel writer, is going to teach us about what it, what it looks like to make God more accessible, more understandable, more beautiful to someone. 
to actual someone else in your context, in your family, in your community. Here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the awkwardness of faith, because I think that is really necessary today. We'll look at the witness of faith and then the fruit of faith. So the awkwardness, the witness, and then the fruit of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, left to ourselves, we have no idea what the scriptures are talking about. If it's just us in our own flesh and bones and in our own minds, we can neither comprehend, let alone apply this living word to our lives or hope that we embody the truth and beauty and meaning of the text. And so help me, help my friends, help my brothers and sisters to know together as your people what it looks like for us to be a people who live this thing out in the flesh, in real space, in real time, certainly not just for one day, but also not just in spaces that we would otherwise, de- otherwise deem as spiritual or religious, but what it looks like to really embody being witnesses, being people who know and love and follow Jesus and encourage others to see his reality, his truth. And so help us, uh, Father, as we hear your word proclaimed over us to be Uh, open and receptive. If you desire to correct us today, would we be ready to be corrected? If you desire to comfort us today, would we be ready to be comforted by you? To just let you take care of us. You know what we need. It's so good of you to know what we need and to give us exactly what we need. So we trust you. We submit ourselves to you. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me explain a little bit uh, more. We'll start with explaining a little bit more about what it means uh, that this is all a bit awkward. Look at the passage with me. John 1 verses 6 through 8 is our primary text. It says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So a few reasons why I think there's a lot of tension here, and it seems a bit unexpected, if you will, in this passage. First, it's awkward because the passage shouldn't really even exist. This little moment, this passage entirely, it makes darkness has not overcome it. And then look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm not wondering what has been taken out. You're not wondering why does this not really go together, because it does. Makes perfect sense. The same to save the world. That's the of creation was coming into the world. The Son of God was taking on flesh to save the world. That's the story. That's the gospel. So why is there this dude whose name is John plopped into the middle of what otherwise looks like a very perfect plan? It's awkward. Secondly, I think it's a bit awkward because John bears witness to something that's incredibly obvious. Incredibly obvious. He came as a witness, the writer says, to bear witness about the light. Now, that's a bit odd because it seems totally unnecessary. Why do we need someone to tell us about a light like this? A light this powerful, a light that shines and the darkness cannot overcome it, a light which makes itself known. It reminds me of a time when one of my children woke up about three hours after my wife and I did. And when they woke up with the sunlight just blasting through all of the windows, they said, hey, everyone, it's morning. Thank you. We we have known this for some time. This is incredibly awkward. How do we help you feel encouraged for identifying something important, but also let you know we've we've been up. We, We get it. See what I mean? It's a bit awkward to give witness to something that's obvious. Lastly, it's a bit obvious and awkward, rather, because we're told that John is not the light. It says he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. That's kind of presumptuous, right? 
It's kind of presumptuous to go, just so you know, I'm not Jesus. And you're like, we're not, we're not worried about mistaking you for Jesus. Many of us live our lives, no matter how faithful, how loving, very few people have come up to you probably and said, you, are you Jesus, right? But, but from the beginning, John is like, the baptizer, John the baptizer is not Jesus. Jesus was a human being, but the similarities sort of end right there. Jesus never sins. He has miraculous powers, infinite wisdom, and compassion for the most far gone and evil people. John eats bugs. Very different existence, right? Very different people. So it's a bit awkward. What are we to make of all this awkwardness? Well, I think we're supposed to take a step back a little bit and realize that all of faith in general is a bit awkward when you really think about it. And the tension in this passage is the tension that I think about the tension that we're experiencing. See, faith lived in the full space in real time. As we considered last week, Advent is about the first and the second coming of Christ, and we live in between these two things. We live to bear witness, if you will, in the midst of the first and the second Advent. And in that, in that in-between, we human beings are meant to bear witness to both of those Advents, to live with faith in light of the first, to live with faith in the coming of the second. Human beings then written into God's story. That's faith. And it's also a bit awkward. If your faith doesn't feel a bit awkward, let's press in a little bit more. The writer of Hebrews goes as far as to say this, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So faith is living in light of something that we cannot see. That's a bit awkward. Hebrews says that what the creation story was all about, that the unseen being made known. John says that's what the advent or the incarnation of the Son of God was all about. By verse 18 in John chapter 1, God, the only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. So faith is living in light of things that we can't see. Think, think of the complexity, or rather just recall how complex that can be in your daily life to take charter, to take orders, to take direction, to believe that your life is filled with a God who cannot be seen. That's complicated. And you've probably tried to explain that to people before, and it can get complicated. It can feel a bit awkward. So what are we to make of this awkwardness? What are we to do with this idea that human beings are written into an otherwise perfectly sufficient and beautiful story? Why is bearing witness to something so obvious necessary? How could he, that's God, possibly be, or rather John, how could he possibly be mistaken for the light itself? Three times in the passage, if you notice, the writer, John, brings up the baptizer, John, as a witness. So yes, there are two Johns that we're talking about. One who wrote this gospel and the one who he's talking about who becomes more famously known as John the Baptist or the baptizer. Look again at verse 6 through 8. Three different times he says witness. There was a man from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So he came as a witness. He came to bear witness. He came to bear witness about something specific, about the light. Again, why does light need a witness? Well, because God said so. I know it's your favorite answer, right? God said so. This, this must not be overlooked. Let's be honest. Many of us would, be, would prefer and even expect 
that this light would come into the world, that's Jesus, would simply shine and it would be obvious and overwhelming and anyone and everyone would see and believe. Have you ever just longed for that to happen? Would you just make this plain to them, please? Right? Would you just complete, would, would you just come back now and set this thing to rights? Would you just make all things well? Shine your light. God has ordained something different. And Pastor John Piper explains that the word and the life and the light are coming into the world, but they are not going to conquer this darkness the way a bolt of lightning brightens the night. They are going to conquer it by lighting millions of cold, dead human torches with the oxygen of the gospel and the mysteriously spontaneous combustion of the new birth. And that gospel will come through human witnesses. God wills it. God has sovereignly chosen to make his light known, the gospel known, Jesus known, himself known through human beings, through your life, through my life, through a collection that we are as witnesses, that is the church, who bear witness together to what is unseen. In fact, the more we read the New Testament, the more we realize we cannot bear witness to this by ourselves. We need one another. This is why we're called the body of Christ. We give a visible representation of Jesus himself here on earth. There's another reason. Bearing witness to such a spectacular light is necessary because we can't see, because we're blind. That's what Paul tells the church in Corinth. Meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you're in John, you're going to navigate through Acts, you're going to get through Romans, and then you're going to get to 1 Corinthians, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Another reason why we need to bear witness is because 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Another reason why we need to bear witness is because we can't see. Therefore, having this ministry, Paul says, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 3, here's what he says, and if our gospel is veiled, it is, only, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So witnessing and being a witness is necessary because of spiritual blindness, or perhaps a bit more awkwardness is introduced here. Witnessing, though, doesn't open eyes. Did you notice that the way that Paul was saying that in 2 Corinthians? We're meant to bear witness because of spiritual blindness, but awkwardly, witnessing doesn't actually open eyes. Spiritual blindness is caused by Satan, who keeps us from seeing the light of the gospel. But in God's kindness, in the same way that God spoke light into creation, the text tells us that he speaks light into the human hearts. And this is interesting, isn't it? And perhaps this is the reason why we need this whole he was not the light bit. You see, witnessing is necessary because God wills it. It's also necessary because of spiritual blindness. But witnessing doesn't cure blindness. Only God does that. It's like the couple on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. No matter how much Jesus was saying and helping them try to connect the dots, it was not until their eyes were opened by someone else that they recognized Jesus and understood the hope of the resurrection. In this strange and beautiful and awkward way then, God does not need us, but he uses us nevertheless. He desires for us to participate in the eradication of darkness all over the world. In your workspace, 
in your family story, in your family heritage, in your community, in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world. He desires for us to participate with him in seeing the darkness eradicated. He doesn't need us, but he uses us anyway. So it's not a good excuse to say, well, God could do it on his own if he wanted to. That's not what he wills. That's not what he desires. He desires to welcome you into this meaningful work of living out our faith in the flesh so that more and more of his light will show up into the dark reaches of this world. What a joy that we have a father who doesn't just say, watch me what I can do, but he says, come with me. I want to use you to amaze you and to see my light shined all over the place. Maybe best-selling books. Maybe that means that you're a parent or a teacher at a CPS school who bears witness to parents and children day, all day long in your faculty and in your community. Maybe that means you're a neighbor who bears witness to the people in your building or to the neighbor across the street that maybe nobody else wants to bear witness about anything with, right? Just being a human being, a human being written into God's story who's got a name, who has been saved and sent by Jesus to be a witness. Okay, so God wills it, and people are blind, but what exactly does it mean to be a witness? What exactly is John doing? What's it look like? Well, technically, a witness is someone who has seen or who knows something, right? You think about a courtroom. Someone is brought into the courtroom as a witness because they know something or they've seen something, right? And in Greek, the word that John employs here is martyr, which tends to refer to both legal and social situations, to someone who bears testimony, things that they've seen, they've heard, they've transacted or experienced. Now, it's not someone who has seen everything. This is really important. It's not someone who knows everything. See, often we are dissuaded from simply speaking and living in profound and winsome ways in our context because we're fearful that we don't have all of the answers. Right? Have you ever felt like that? If I live too much like Jesus, they're going to start asking me questions, and I don't have all of the, so I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to keep kind of hiding. Well, a single witness is never meant to have all the answers. Single witness is never meant to have all of the answers, do they? They have to live their story. What they have is a message, an experience, and a calling to live in light of that reality. In other words, because of God's unique calling on your life, there is not someone else that he is ready to replace you with if you don't do it well. He desires something from you. He desires for you to live a particular way in your sphere of influence that nobody else really can because that's where you are, right? We know from the story of uh, the baptizer, John's birth, that his witness was about words and character, but it was also about an invitation. And it actually started in utero. One of the most fantastic stories in all of Scripture is John the Baptist jumping up and going nuts. Had time to navigate that as well. But he doesn't even wait, y'all. He doesn't even wait for his birth to embrace his calling. But here's what the angel tells his father, Zechariah, in Luke chapter 1. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. That is his prayer to have a child. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the, to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, John would be a witness in a number of ways that in some respects are pretty spectacular and in other ways are very common, meant to, for us to emulate and for us to understand. 
Nobody else could have been John the baptizer. That's who God willed and ordained. But there is something about his calling, I think, that we can learn a great deal about. See, the angel said that he's going to go before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In other words, he's going to have something to say. Elijah was a prophet. has something to say about who God is, what he's like. And so John will speak about the light. The angel also said that John will bring joy and gladness and will be great. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's going to walk in the light. So he's going to speak about the light. He's going to walk in the light. And then the angel also said he will turn many children, fathers, disobedient to the Lord. He's going to invite others into the light. So so you see that framework. John's going to have something to say about the light. John's going to live in that light with integrity. And he's going to invite others into the light because he knows it's not just for him. You see the, the, the model that we're being given here about what it means to be a witness. That's a witness. Someone who speaks about the light, lives in the light, and invites others into the light. That's what faith in the flesh looks like. God God doesn't need us, but he wants us and calls us to be witnesses to his light. The beauty and truth of his coming kingdom in word and character and with an invitation. See, many of us have many different gifts. We're not all supposed to be John the Baptist. You're not all supposed to be the person sitting next to you. That we are all meant to emulate or form this body together of Christ with different responsibilities, gifts, and joys, and likes, and loves, and challenges, and weaknesses. And in all of that, we give witness to Jesus Christ. We speak about him. We live with integrity in light of who he is. And then we invite others as well. See, amidst the awkwardness and the beauty of our calling as witnesses, I think that's when we begin to see fruit, the fruit of faith. The writer John is clear that the baptizer John's reason for bearing witness is all about belief. Look at verse 7, still John chapter 1. He says that all might believe through him. Belief, or we could say eyes being opened to this light, is the fruit of faith. That's actually been, or is the, the, the writer John's purpose for writing his entire gospel account. He's one of the gospel writers that's like, here's why I'm writing very, very clearly. In John chapter 2, verse 31, he says, but these things, rather, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why he's written. Living faith in the flesh then causes belief to spark in others, and that generative faith leads to a life in Jesus' name. This is why John is writing. When we speak and live in the light, it begins to point people to this light. When we do all of this, we're living then as these signposts, if you will, these visible, tangible, clear displays of something that is unseen. This is what John's life is all about. From the very fusion, in the beginning before his birth, unexpectedly, I think this is also what causes confusion and why we need to be clear about who we are and who we're not. It's why it was necessary to clarify over and over again for John that he was not the light. You see, the fruit of the light shining in our lives is to shine brightly for the sake of others, Jesus Christ. But I bet that someone has likely looked at your life and life. They may not have, and that you were the source of the goodness and joy of your own life. They may not have thought you were Jesus, but when they looked at you, they thought, this is just a good person. This is just a loving neighbor. This is just a really honest colleague. In other words, they mistake the sign for the source. This is when the witness of our character must turn into the witness of our words, to clarifying, this is why I live the way that I do. This is why I do what I do. For John, this meant correcting people's misunderstandings about his identity and ministry. He had to do it all the time. Look down to verse 19. This is fantastic. Verse 19, he says, And this is the testimony of John. So John chapter 1. 
When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Don't you love that? We've heard all kinds of awesome things about you. Who are you? Well, I'm not Jesus, okay? I can tell you that much. It keeps going. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What does he say? This is brilliant. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord, and the prophet, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm just the guy that's telling you about the guy. Don't you love that? He doesn't even just give, he didn't even give himself a role. He's just, I'm a voice. I'm someone speaking about someone who's coming. I'm just meant to prepare this way. See, John was speaking about the light. John was living in the light. He was inviting others into the light. And yet over and over and over again, he had to be really careful to clarify that he was not the light. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Who is he? I'm a voice. I'm crying out. I'm preparing the way for See, my whole life is about someone else. See, as witnesses, we will always have to clarify where the real power, where the real joy, where the real contentment, where the real light is coming from. And I think more times than not, it comes when we sit our brokenness and our need for the light just as much as that we've got the light in us. Does that make sense? That it's your acknowledgement of your desperate need for Jesus, not the fact that you have already met him, that I think demonstrates something to a watching world that they have no category for. I'm just a voice, a voice that sometimes is too low, a voice that's sometimes way too loud, a voice that sometimes is not really clear, but all of my life I want to be dedicated to that of another. See, perhaps that's another fruit of faith. Living with faith in the flesh, trusting Jesus in real space, in real time, daily giving him glory as the source and substance of your life. Daily rejecting the lie that we're somehow the own progenitors of our own goodness and joy and truth and light. See, can you imagine if we became a people who cultivated this constant daily disposition that all that I have that is good and meaningful and beautiful comes from somewhere else? It comes from someone else. Now, I know some, some people have debated before whether or not it's really biblical to have to sit and pray before a meal. Whatever. I just think if you've got a chance to pray, do it, right? Because ultimately, you're sitting down and a lot of evidence is in front of you that you don't deserve. There is always going to be some leftovers at most of our tables. That's an amazing gift of God's grace because many people don't have that. Many people don't have that expectation that they're always going to have more than they need. That's coming from the Lord. Many times sitting around a table with somebody else, it's like, I can't believe someone else is still like wants to hang out with me. I know they're my kids and everything, but still, like it's amazing that they're here. That's God's grace. See, when we become so watchful for the source of the light, everything around us becomes evidence of his grace in our life, and it transforms us. See, regretfully, this day and age, the church is an incredibly entitled bunch. And this thing is prevailing in our own hearts and in our own midst as well. A church that becomes entitled is a church that forgot where the light comes from. And a church that is entitled is not a church that invites well, that lives with integrity, and that speaks rightly about the light. After John gives these constant over... Now think about this. His message works. Let me just be honest with you. 
I really love giving glory to God if somebody says, like, I saw the way that you handled that conflict. Thank you. That was really awesome. Or the sermon actually wasn't terrible this week. Really appreciated that. That was awesome. In that moment, I want to say glory to God. But in all honesty, if people start talking more about Jesus and less about my work, I start getting really uncomfortable. Like, am I necessary anymore? (laughs) You really value me or just value Jesus? I know that's weird. This is my brokenness, right? That's what happened to John. This is what happened to John. Look, keep, keep moving down. Now, verses 25 and following. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So they're squabbling about things that many of us don't really care about, except ultimately what's happening is that Jesus is garnering a following. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, we, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who was the bridegroom is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly at the bridegroom. He must increase, but I must decrease. Faith in the flesh leads others to faith, and it cultivates humility, a deep humility within us. Knowing we exist to point to another, it's freeing, but it's also challenging. It frees us from the illusion of trying to be God, isn't it? To want the kind of attention that the light alone deserves. Daily, then, we need to be reminded in our groups, in our relationships, and as a church family, that we are witnesses to another, And one day, all credit, all honor, our glory will be completely his. And part of the beauty of being a part of the kingdom now is we get to see Jesus have his glory right now. And for some of us, that creates a lot of tension because I like glory, I like attention, I like praise. But daily, we need to combat lies of shame, which tells us that we're just human beings and can't be fruitful in the kingdom. Daily, we need to address pride, which neglects clarifying the source of light and life. Like, yeah, I I do really do a good job, so you're welcome, world. Daily, we need the gospel. You see, human beings find themselves in God's story only because God wrote himself into our story. You see, John being introduced in this story is only really makes sense because God was writing himself into John's story. Does that make sense? It wouldn't make any sense if John just shows up and starts doing all of this divine work. It makes perfect sense if the Son of God was coming in the flesh. See, long before the Lord writes human beings into the story of God, God was planning on writing himself into your story. Stepping into real space in real time, he can witness, rather humans can witness the unseen because the divine took on flesh and he opened your eyes first. He opened my eyes first perhaps before he opens someone else's in your life. See, John was a man sent by God to bear witness. Anne was a woman sent by God to bear witness to the light. You are a human being sent by God to bear witness to something you've seen, something you know, something you've experienced. It's a bit awkward. I know. It'll be okay. We're in this together. We're all just going to be a bunch of awkward witnesses together, right? But there's something, I think, miraculous when we become a community that constantly is pointing one another to the light, is that the light shows up more and more. 
shows up more and more in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, because we've seen something and we long. When we see that real thing, we want to see it more and more. See, when we bear witness through our words, our character, invitation to what we've experienced by God's power and grace and joy, the light continues to penetrate the darkness. And as in creation, as in the first advent, the promise for you and I is the same, the darkness will. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. It's so easy to, one, neglect the witnessing call that you've given us and to see life just in front of us as it is for us, for ourselves. And yet the calling you gave John is the calling that you give all of us to be witnesses, to bear witness about the light. We are not the light, but we've seen it by your grace. And so we pray, Father, in Logan Square, in Avondale, Hermosa, Humboldt Park, East Garfield, Wicker Park, Bucktown, and all over the city, would your light shine more brightly? Not because you decide, perhaps, in a second to flip a switch and everything changes, but because we begin to wake up to the light to speak truth about the light, to live in the light with integrity, and to invite others to walk in the light even as you are in the light. That's what this Advent season reminds us of, is that there's such a joy in that because you were God who did that first. That your son came and shined brightly in this world and walked in the light and then invited us in. We haven't figured it out on our own. We've received a gracious invitation. And so may we be a people who graciously invite others with our words, with our character, with our relationships, the jobs you've given us. And would it be for your glory? Would you get all the credit, all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise? And we long for a day when dark that can advent help us to be a people who live with faith in the flesh. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing. Thank you.